Hi everybody, this is Ben and this is Ben's Week in Medical School, sharing knowledge about the human body and glimpses into life in medical school. This podcast is for your entertainment and education. I do my best to present accurate information, but this podcast is not professional medical advice. The podcast is a personal project and does not represent the views of my medical school. Welcome back to Ben's Week in Medical School. This is episode 201. It's the end of week 48 of medical school. Today, I'm going to talk about two great lectures. One was about a training I received to deliver Narcan for opioid overdoses, and another was about palliative care. And I'm going to highlight some interesting parts from the first week of pulmonology, the study of breathing and the lungs and oxygenating our organs. Here we go. So it's my first week as an M2, second year medical student, and I feel like I have more purpose than ever. I'm really moving through the school better and navigating my activities, and I'm just feeling more confident in my ability to get things done. Uh, I've been getting a lot of experience in the anatomy lab. My anatomy group wasn't really fixed during my first year. I kind of floated between a few different groups. And that solidified this spring, and I think we're functioning really well. I think we teach each other the anatomy, and we all kind of contribute. And we're just working together when we examine the cadavers to discover structures that we need to find. And we're covering lots of ground in each anatomy section, but it's also a fun group. I want to make a quick note about the episode numbers. I jumped right from episode 41 to episode 201. Much like they do in TV shows, I decided that I would like to keep track of which year in medical school I'm in using the first digit of the episode number. So the 2 is just for second year, and the 01 is for the first episode of the new year. So 201. On Tuesday evening, our street medicine Kalamazoo group brought in the founder and executive director of the COPE Network, Nancy King to our campus to talk with medical students. COPE is a harm reduction organization and a recovery organization for people with opioid dependence, addictions, and overdoses. Um, So there were medical students, there were residents, and attending physicians all at this lecture to talk about opioid addiction and dependence and overdoses and how to revive someone if you suspect that they're Um, that they've overdosed on an opioid. The presentation was really powerful, and and there are tons of different drivers of overdose risk that we went over, including some interesting ones that I hadn't really thought about before. The first one was that overdoses are more likely when people use alone, which is really common. Um, There's a big stigma against different kinds of drug use. People often get high with the door closed and locked, and then no one knows if they've overdosed. So that's really dangerous. Street drugs are often of vastly different potency levels, and a lot of times people overdose when they have to switch to a different source for their drugs. Sometimes that new source will have a much higher fentanyl content, and that fentanyl is so much stronger than actual heroin, uh, and it and it can cause a very fast overdose. As they say, people can overdose with the needle still in their arm. Another one that I was really surprised about was that the brain's tolerance to opioid goes up and up and up after you use, 
but it goes away after a few days. So what that means is a lot of people who overdose after they get out of jail or after they get out of a treatment program. They've dried out, their tolerance goes way down, and then if they decide to use again and use the same amount they were using before going to jail or before going into a recovery program, they'll overdose just like that. The last one was mixing uppers like cocaine or meth with opioids. It makes people way more likely to overdose as well. And this is really scary because lots of cocaine and methamphetamine on the street is already mixed with small amounts of fentanyl for some reason. I was really impressed with our presenter. Nancy did a great job, and I think everybody left really inspired and grateful to have been able to participate in that session, hopeful that, that our knowledge can be put to good use. Everyone received a Narcan kit, so now there are 60 more of us medical people with Narcan kits in our cars or backpacks prepared to help if we see someone who we suspect may have had an overdose. The other top lecture of the week was about palliative care with Dr. Michael Raffelson, who is a family doctor and did a fellowship in palliative care. The term palliative care is kind of being replaced inside of hospitals with the term advanced illness management to get away from the stigma that it's just about the end of someone's life or is inextricably linked to hospice. Um, It's a lot more than that. Um, Our country is starting to recognize that care for people with life-limiting illnesses is often hugely expensive with multiple intensive care stays, but simultaneously it's not even meeting the goals of the patients. Advanced illness management teams come into the picture earlier and earlier to start having conversations with patients and care teams to coordinate all the aspects of treatment. They can work with oncologists and surgeons uh, and internal medicine doctors. And then at the last six months of life, any patient is also eligible for hospice care, which is an expanded set of services that include lots of home care, home visits from nurses, um, medical equipment that you might need to have transported and installed in your house so that you can um, have a death outside of the hospital in the home, which is what the vast majority of patients ask for and wish for as part of their end of life. So palliative care and advanced illness management is something that people can access from the beginning of getting a diagnosis with a chronic disease like kidney failure or cancer. And it's not something that should be put off until like the last week of someone's life. One of the things that has suppressed this type of care in America is that hospitals get paid by how many expensive services they provide, like ICU stays. Dr. Raffleson gave a great example of how this plays out. He mentioned that he could counsel a patient for 45 minutes discussing their end-of-life goals, their spiritual goals, functional goals, and, and planning how to reduce their medications to the most effective core group of medications to give them the highest quality of life, and he would get about $80 for that interaction. On the other hand, if he freezes a wart on someone's toe, he could bill an insurance company $400. The medical incentives need to change, and uh, and Dr. Raffleson was really passionate about the kinds of work that he gets to do with patients, and it was, it was an inspiring and interesting talk. Um, the other great thing about the field is that almost any board-certified physician can undertake a one-year fellowship training to become a palliative care physician. 
So that's something that I've been excited about. I really like the excitement of emergency room, but I also see myself wanting to have these deep conversations with patients about their, um, their goals in the face of advanced illnesses. That's a possibility that's really on my radar. We are studying the lungs, or as I like to say, the accordion of the upper body. Just kidding. Unlike the heart, the lungs are actually operated by the brain. They don't just inflate themselves. Uh, so each time we inhale and exhale, the signal comes from a part deep in the brain stem, causes our diaphragm to, to lower, pulling our lungs open, pulling air in. The primitive features of the lungs, like the tube that will eventually become the trachea and the bronchial tubes, they start to develop in the third or fourth week of the development of a fetus, you know, like 26 days in. But they keep growing and developing the whole time during the pregnancy. So one of the key risks of preterm babies is having underdeveloped lungs. The last few weeks of a pregnancy are actually crucial to developing the very fine microscopic passageways that allow for an, ex an astounding surface area for transporting oxygen. The surface area inside of the lungs is so complex and, and tiny that if all of it were sort of unfolded and uh, spread out and counted up, it would be about 750 square feet. That's like the floor plan of an ample one-bedroom apartment. So that's all folded up inside of our lungs. It's incredible. Here's an interesting concept. When a fetus is growing inside a mom, its lungs are filled with fluid and it doesn't get oxygen by breathing, but rather directly by sharing the blood supply with the mom, piggybacking on, on mom's lungs. When the baby's born, one of the first things to happen as it squeezes through the birth canal is that in doing so, about two thirds of the fluid gets squeezed out of the baby's lungs. So there's sort of a surprise evolutionary advantage to a vaginal birth as opposed to like a cesarean section because it prepares the lungs even more quickly to inflate after birth because more liquid has already been voided from the lungs. Whatever fluid remains in the lungs will be absorbed kind of over time uh, over the next few days. Another thing that we learned is that not every part of the lung is always really working at all times. When we're sitting, breathing at rest, watching TV, reading, relaxing, except when we're talking or recording a podcast, uh, we breathe in and out about 500 milliliters of air. That's like a, a large glass of water. Our lungs, though, uh, when we're you know breathing heavily, we can be breathing in and out two to three liters of air, so six times that amount. Um, so our body will selectively fill the parts of the lungs that it needs to, and it'll actually dynamically reroute blood to just those areas so that it's really efficiently working. Um, here's one more thing. In order to keep the smallest parts of our lungs open at all times, we actually always leave a little bit of air in the lungs. So when we breathe out, there's still going to be about a liter of air in the lungs, holding open the tiny little air sacs called alveoli. Uh, that's really important. That's called the residual volume of the lung, and we never breathe that out. So this week was all about how healthy lungs function, along with a tiny bit about how to measure how healthy the lungs are. Um, but next week, we are really going to dive into dysfunction in the lungs, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, bronchitis, and we'll focus on the microscopic structures of the little tiny air sacs, the alveoli, and what happens when they're inflamed or infected or damaged. 
So it was a good start. I like when we do the normal, then abnormal. I think it's fun to see how things work perfectly before we start to examine the different illnesses and pathology that can happen. That's it for this week. It was a fun week with inspiring lectures about the profession of medicine and treating opioid overdoses. I now have a Narcan kit in my glove box, so let me know if you need my help. It was a rewarding week to be in the classroom in the anatomy lab. Uh, if you have any questions for the next episode, please email me. My email address is ben at bensweek.com. Thanks to David Funkhauser for the intro and outro music, and thank you for listening. Have a great week.